hey everybody, we have uh, the offensive security team here from Secure IT 360 bringing you this week's Threat Intel Brief. And in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about threat actors using Bloodhound for post-compromise enumeration, UNC 3524, Mandiant's new report, new initial access trends, and unauthenticated RCEs in F5 Big IP. So uh, the first kind of action item here, first item on our list is Bloodhound. So Talus released a quarterly report just recently, and it's just yet again another example of threat actors using Bloodhound for post-compromise enumeration. And just to level set, uh, and for those unaware, Bloodhound is a super popular Active Directory enumeration tool. It's very popular amongst pen testers and threat actors alike. Uh, it allows you to essentially map and graph your domain. Uh, you can find attack paths and all sorts of good stuff. And for accuracy's sake, Sharphound is actually the name of the collection tool. So when we talk about you know threat actors using Bloodhound, they are using Bloodhound. That's the GUI tools. You can show the graph and see everything. Sharphound is the actual collection tool. Yeah, and and just also to kind of build on that for a second, the um, there are like a million variations of Sharphound, and and so you know, in, in literally every language, I think, right. That executes on windows and maybe some, some stuff that executes on Linux. I'm not sure, but, um, that that's part of what makes detection super tough. I think. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, a PowerShell ingester. There's a C sharp ingester. There's uh, Python tools that are built for running it with credentials from a Linux environment. Uh, there's, there's a whole, there's a very large community around bloodhound, uh, and it's a it's a really great tool that we use on Pentest all the time. Uh, pretty much every engagement that we can, that's an internal or an assumed breach Pentest, we will run Bloodhound because it's so valuable for our customers. Uh, and it finds those attack paths that, uh, you know, attackers are really looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, it's not a, this, uh, so this threat report by uh, Talos kind of highlights the, the need for uh, for running these things and for uh, using these things in your environment. And uh, Bloodhound, it's not exclusive to Bloodhound. There's other tools that do this post-compromise enumeration. AD Find is one, if you've read a lot of threat reports recently, that one's very popular as well. So this post-compromise enumeration is a very common technique in something that uh, you know we like to use and help defenders get a handle on um, you know, you know, figuring out where those attack paths are. Yeah. And, and I think what makes this solution, uh, elegant or unique to me, at least is, um, it's not focused on the tool. Right. And, and so what I mean by that is a lot of defensive strategies kind of revolve around a very specific technique or a very, uh, specific sub tooling. Um, but in this case, you know, and, and, and this is true for all, uh, decoy tokens, right? Because decoy tokens exist in like multiple ways and and can be scattered all over the enterprise, even embedded in documents and stuff like that. Um, but I like that approach because it doesn't care uh, about the tooling or the, even the process for that matter. It just cares somebody is targeting Active Directory and uh, and and so you should know about it. Yeah, definitely. Well, one of the things that kind of frustrates us as pen testers 
is canary tokens or honey tokens decoys scattered around an environment. Uh, and, so and by frustrate, you mean um, like make it hard for us. Exactly. Make it hard for us as pen way. testers in a good way, right? That's right. When we see an environment that has canary tokens, we're like, yes, that's awesome. Um, because it is such a, it's a high fidelity alert, a low false positive, and it's a great early warning system for things like this. So we mm-hmm. always encourage, uh, you know, uh, our clients on engagements to, to use things like this. Yeah. Um, and there's a, a number of creative ways to, to go about, you know, uh, looking for this type of behavior in your environment. And like you said, Brad, it, it's important to focus on the behavior, not necessarily the tool, because the tool can change. Uh, but the techniques themselves and the behavior uh, is really tried and true, and it'll not vary uh, significantly over time, right? Yeah, I agree. Cool. So uh, the next one on our list is Mandiant put out, uh, they, they published a couple of reports this week, actually and a number of different things. But one that caught my eye was this UNC 3524. I spy on your email. That's the name of it. And uh, kind of the story goes here is Mandy introduced this uncategorized threat threat actor, threat group. And it's newly discovered, uh, supposedly kind of focused on espionage. And they target uh, emails. So their whole goal, I guess, is bulk email collection. And they focus on targets that deal with things like corporate development, mergers and acquisitions, large corporate transactions, things like that. And uh, what I really found interesting about this report and this group is the way that they uh, maintain access to an environment. So they use something called Quiet Exit, which is their back name of their backdoor that they deploy on network appliances. So the report that made it released says they use things like SANS, load balancers, wireless access points, things like that to uh, to maintain access to an environment. So I thought that was kind of unique. Uh, you know, I think there was a lot of commentary about that in the community. Um, kind of an interesting way to maintain access to an environment. So I would, something that immediately comes to mind, so Tyler and Jordan can speak to this a little bit too, is how often do you guys see IoT style um, devices like internet facing on external pen tests? Are you talking like firewalls and things of that matter? I'm thinking like IoT, like um, devices that do miscellaneous activities. So like, uh, IP cameras, um, you know, load balancer interfaces, which we're going to talk about one actually in just a minute. But uh, you know, the, the, the devices that probably shouldn't be on the public internet that a, that a bad actor like this might be able to use. Like, it's it's not uncommon, right? On external so it's probably coin flip. Whether an organization has one or doesn't. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of been my experience too. Is we 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 see enough IP cameras on the public internet that like. We, we had to put a, a, a dedicated process for, for dealing with them and, you know, dedicated attack tools. So it's that flipping common um, that we see those things. So. We also see a lot of phone systems, especially in like retirement homes and things like that, that are rather outdated on what their technology field is. I didn't even think about that as an IoT object. That's a good point. Um, yeah. So I would imagine those are the kind of devices that these guys are dropping. What'd you call it, Spencer? The, they call it quiet exit, I guess is the name of the back door. Wow. 
Well, yeah. so, they're so uh, creative in their naming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's the cool thing to do is to like give these malwares uh, cool names. Same with threat groups, right? Like uh, I forget the name of um, the one that I was reading about today. Um, something Panda. It was a Chinese threat group or something like that. But all these, I think the, the fun thing to do is give these like threat groups, funny names. Yeah. Um, kind of humanizes them a bit or, or something. I don't know, but that's kind of the thing to do, I guess, in threat and tell. Well, when I, when I start my botnet, I'm, I'm going to name it something like loud entry instead of silent exit, like just to make fun of someone else's malware. I'm just going to yeah. give the name. That's the opposite of whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I like that. Yeah. The, the, one of the things that was interesting too, about this was uh, the devices themselves. A lot of times you access these devices over things like SSH, right? So that could be helpful uh, when you're looking at traffic and, and you want to harden your defenses. You know, one of the things that we recommend in Tyler and Jordan, you can speak to this too, is on external pen tests, you know, we'll look at all the open ports. We'll look at the attack surface. And, you know, a lot of times there's things open that shouldn't be. And SSH is commonly one of those things. There's other protocols that are open that present a risk to to environments, right? So that can be used as a way to, you know, uh, audit your attack surface and then harden it, right? Correct. We even see, <clears throat> you know, kind of some web hosts that uh, mimic RDP and you can get remote desktop through that way and things like that also. Yeah, and yeah. network security monitor, you can you know, use network security monitoring if you have it or just, you know, uh, any way you analyze your firewall traffic to look for traffic that's, you know, large and outbound or over SSH um, or tagged as SSH rather that are over ports other than 22, like the report from Mandiant suggests. So that can be used as a way to kind of help uh, detect some of these, these groups. Yeah. And, and, you know, as a side note, almost universally when we're doing, I think, internal pen tests, we run into situations where we'll do an egress, like we'll use egress buster or um, any port and um, in, in like they're, they're, they're allowing everything outbound, right? Like uh, with the exception of a handful of ports there, you know, if you're allowing things like SSH, uh, FTP, TFTP, any of those file transfer protocols outbound, even on standard ports, man, that is not a standard operating like requirement for most companies. So your average user inside your network does not need to be sending SSH to the public internet. Um, and so we encourage everybody to block that. Um, to basically block everything, by the way, right? And and I'm including HTTP and HTTPS, uh, 80 and 443 on that because those should be handled through WCCP or outbound proxies so they can be inspected for bad behavior. Um, and I understand that, that that's a big ask for even small companies to do something like that. But, but blocking all of those silly protocols outbound from the inside of your network is not a heavy lift. And, and, and it probably won't even break anything, probably. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> the it's easy word, for me right? to say that. I'm not the guy who has to support, you know, the process that, that, that breaks when they turn it off. So, yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in this report as well, in the kind of the remediation section or the hardening section that they have, uh, they 
Mandiant has some specific re- recommendations in, in hardening guidance against uh, these specific TTPs that these threat actors use. They seem to be similar to this UNC 2452, which is the where the specific guidance comes in. Uh, but a lot of it is kind of, uh, you know, can be used for other groups as well, the, the techniques for other groups as well. Um, so they have a number of recommendations and they have a good resource in that uh, in that report and a white paper that talks about some specific guidance for things like protecting Office 365 and making sure that you're hardening uh, those settings because a lot of those settings just like Active Directory are kind of weak by default so there's some good recommendations in that article that's good stuff and we'll include that in the show notes so if you're if you're watching this on YouTube or um, if you get it from pretty much anywhere we'll include some of the resources the links and stuff so you can dig into it if you want to yep the next thing that I thought was was interesting this week was uh, maybe not an increase in this, but definitely is becoming more apparent, apparent that threat actors and, and groups are looking for ways to uh, improve their initial access skills or expand upon their options for initial access. And what I mean by that is a common way that uh, initial access is done right now is through macros. And Microsoft recently announced they're locking it down. They're going to be marking things that uh, come from the internet, right? They're going to use Mark of the web. It's called to mark uh, archive files and things like that. And, and macros that come from the internet. So threat groups are, are, are trying to get ahead of the curve here and try and test out new initial access methods. And one that appears to be super popular. And one I think that, you know, we continue to, or we will expect to continue to get more, uh, more use out of and will expect threat actors to use more of is this process or this initial access method of using zip files plus ISOs plus LNKs or which are link files in Windows. And there's a, a good write-up on the Bumblebee malware campaign that uses this method. And essentially they spearfish the user. Uh, they send them, you know, some link right to OneDrive or whatever, wherever the payload is hosted. That payload is actually a zipped up ISO. Sometimes it's password protected, you know, to make it look more legit. And they give you the password in the email. And then you unzip that ISO and, or sorry, you unzip that, that archive and there's an ISO in it. And then the user is instructed to mount the ISO. And from there, there's an LNK file with DLL, with a DLL that's planted in that archive, and then that launches the malware. So uh, what's interesting about this is there are certain products that propagate the mark of the web, you know, like flag or attribute on files and archives. 7-Zip, coincidentally enough, or not coincidentally enough, I guess, uh, has come out recently and said they're not going to support mark of the web. However, mm-hmm. other products like WinRAR are going to for certain file extensions. So... This is going to be kind of the new cat and mouse game, probably with Mark yeah. of the Web and macros and zips and ISOs. Yeah, man. As long as you have users who are willing to download files from a link, mount an ISO, and click on a flip an LNK file, it does not matter what you do, right? And um, so, so in my previous life, we had a three strikes and you're out rule. 
if you if you failed the um the 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 fishing you know campaigns the fake fishing campaigns that we had three times you were fired um I, mean, it, I was in a high security industry right and and so it was really critical that you didn't screw up like that um but it was that big of a deal right and so imagine if you're in the defense industry or healthcare or well maybe not healthcare they, they put up with tons of crap but uh but the financial industry you know places like that you know making this mistake could be millions right tens of millions of dollars in losses so um but yeah dude and i think tyler you were tracking bumblebee a week ago right like you were kind of ahead of this a little bit you were tracking uh that particular malware group right yeah i was <clears throat> just kind of did some in-depth research to kind of get kind of get a grasp on it and what its capabilities were but you know the the core component of that malware is like you said just a user clicking yeah. and mounting an ISO in your environment and then it's right. kind of game over from there. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's and there's cool. one of the things that I kind of came to light as a, as a result of the attention this was getting is a lot of people were looking into, for example, the mark of the web. There's a GitHub repo uh, that uh, somebody created to um, essentially track what archive your software vendors are going to support propagation of mark of the web in their products. So that's yeah. really cool. So a lot of the communities come together to kind of help solve this like, like they do a lot of times. And the other thing that's really cool too, uh, from a defensive standpoint and kind of protection against this is you can actually uh, deploy a registry key to prevent users from right-clicking and mounting an ISO. So there's a okay. GPO setting that you can deploy or a registry setting you can deploy through group policy to prevent that. So you can still do it other ways. You know, you can do it with PowerShell and stuff like that, but it just makes it a little bit harder to prevent the user from, from doing it themselves. So, so what are your thoughts on the mark of the web? Like, is this a good thing? Is this something we should be pushing for from an adoption perspective? Like what are, what are your kind of broad thoughts on that? Cause I think it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, I think I think it's net, it's going to net be net positive. I think it's going to make it harder for threat actors to use things like macros and use this technique. But they're just like anything else; it relies on the vendors supporting it. So, for example, like I said, Seven Zip, um, they had you know the creators of Seven Zip had said they're not going to support Mark of the Web. So, you know, Seven Zip is a great tool. Was. Uh, so what I heard and what I kind of saw on the internet was essentially performance reason, reasons was potentially one of the reasons. Okay. Um, but that'll be kind of, uh, that's kind of where I think this is going to go is some vendors maybe will support it. Others won't for other reasons. And uh, we'll see that, you know, some organizations will choose to only support products or only use products that support uh, mark of the web propagation. But yeah, I think I think it's an interesting thing. I think it's overall going to be net positive. I think it is going to make it harder and raise the bar maybe a little bit, mm-hmm. make their actors work a little bit harder. Um, I'm all about that, man. I'm all so, about yeah, that. So yeah, I I think it's still a, a newish thing. So there'll undoubtedly be bypasses and ways to circumvent those things. But um, I think as long as we're continually raising the bar, I think I think that's a, a net positive. Yeah, that was kind of, that's actually what I was going to say too, is, is, you know, you stack enough 
of these net positives on top of a particular threat vector or attack vector, I guess is the right word. It's, it's going to just become unused, right? Um, you know, a hundred years ago when we were first getting into the like, you know, initial waves of fishing, we were taking some very basic steps in our industry that was really hurting the fishers and the spammers. Uh, and they would just move on. Like you could, you could literally watch on a graph, the fishing just drop almost overnight when you started implementing some basic security controls around it because they just, they wanted better targets. So, you know, organizations can use this along with other things to just make themselves less of a target so that, yep. you know, I don't know, just, just interesting stuff. Yeah. And it's, it speaks to dis- defense in depth, right? Yeah. We have Mark of the web. We can control macros uh, with group policies. Um, you have EDR, you have firewalls. Uh, so, you know, it, it helps implement things that, uh, that improve defense in depth and build upon that defense in depth. Yeah. Agreed. Cool. All right. Is it my turn? Yeah. So I think uh, <laughs> it's, it's up to you. Man. Sweet. So, so in an effort to prove that I actually do something here at secure IT 360, um, I did research on this last thing for the week. So we need um, an applause like soundboard, <laughs> right? We really do, man. Uh, there's going to be several people who are going to go, uh, BS. We know, we know Brad didn't do that. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so, so big IP released, um, a CVE, uh, 1388 for those of you who are into that kind of thing. And there is a component within the administrative, um, interface that is an API that's used for administrative scripting and automation. Uh, they they call it, I think, iREST or iControl, sorry, iControl REST API. And it basically lets you do almost anything you can do if you were logged in um, to the web interface, the administrative interface. In this particular case, though, the authentication mechanism can be bypassed. Um, and in doing so, an unauthenticated attacker can basically be an administrator on any big IP device. Um now, what is Big IP and why do we care? Uh, Big IP is a load balancing and security appliance that is frequently used um, for large web applications or you know more broad proxy and um, and high availability stuff. So it, it's definitely in use, and it's even more so in use at larger organizations. So there, there's going to be a lot of big juicy targets for this. Now. I mentioned that it was the administrative interface, and that's an important distinction because you should not have your big IP administrative um, foot, for lack of a better word, on the internet, right? So, uh, however, Tyler Jordan, how often do you guys see ad- admin interfaces on the flipping internet for your external pen tests? All the time. Constantly. 80, 90. I won't say a hundred percent because there are no absolutes in our business, but it's a lot. Um, I would even say, I think this year we've seen a couple of big IP admin interfaces on the public internet. Um, I can't remember how many, but I, but it, you know, it just kind of pings in your mind because big IP has that like red, really distinct logo. Yep. And so anyway, um, long story short, I, uh, you know, this is probably something that's going to get weaponized sooner rather than later. It looks to be pretty straightforward, by the way. If you're familiar with developing um, attacks on APIs, especially like uh, 
um, like automation against APIs, this is a pretty easy thing to figure out. So, yeah, and I think I think there's uh, some uh, research that suggests that there are uh, groups or researchers, maybe harmless security researchers uh, scanning for this on the internet, scanning for big IP devices, right? Looking for these things. Uh, I think it was CISA has uh, released some information about, um, you know, searches against F5 management interfaces. So threat actors or researchers or whoever scanning the internet for these devices. So if you put in a device on the internet, it's undoubtedly going to get scanned whether it's scanned by a bad actor or by Shodan or a researcher, you know, once something's on the internet, it's going to get scanned. It's going to get poked. And yeah. things like this are a pretty big risk when it's just exposed on the internet like that, because the internet's getting scanned in mass all day, every day. day. Yeah. And, and, and I would even say, right. Um, we usually try to write up, if someone has a, a what we what we consider to be an administrative interface that's public facing, we'll try to write them up in the in the pen test report. Um, you know, if I'm an IT manager right now at a at a medium to large firm and I know I'm using big IP services, I'm going to look at that config right now. I want to make sure that that um, I control they stole that nomenclature from Apple. I'm sure that my I control REST interface is only internally facing. And if I have the mechanisms by which to do it, I'm going to block access to that, uh, even from the inside, right? Because the last yep. thing I want to do is part of a threat actor's foothold is to reach out, grab my security appliance, and start massaging its insides, right? So, uh, you know, not uh, not cool. But yep. but the remediation is yet again, and I, I'm going to kind of go back a little bit to all of the things we've talked about today. Um, in some capacity or another are hindered by best practices. Okay. So emails with links in which, you know, you can sandbox and inspect going back to the, you know, the, I think it was Mandiant's report. Uh, and, and so this is a perfect example, like don't have admin interfaces on the internet, you know, so, so follow best practices from a basic security perspective and half the stuff we talked about today goes away or is at least hindered in some capacity. Yep. So. Yep. Cool. Nice. Um, all right. So that's all we have, folks. Um, you know, tune back in next week for another episode of This Week in Review. Um, and also, you know, we'll put some links to our blog and, and uh, you know, other resources in the description. So however you're consuming this, there's probably some accompanying fun to go with it, you know. So uh, that's it, folks. Uh, have a good weekend. We'll see you. Thanks, everybody.